Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Elizabeth McCoy, and I'm a graduate student in the Museum Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University. Um, today, it is my pleasure to interview Dana Mitroff-Silvers. Um, Dana is a design thinking facilitator and web strategy consultant um, with Designing Insights based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Before starting her consulting firm, Dana worked for 10 years as head of the web at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, where she oversaw the development of their award-winning website, spearheaded many groundbreaking digital projects. Dana also runs the insightful blog Design Thinking for Museums, where she discuss discusses human-centered design for cultural institutions. Um, this interview is part of a group project for the class Developing Museum Web Projects, and I'll be asking questions developed in collaboration with the group members, um, which include myself, Emily Baker, Rachel Myers, and Leslie Walfish. Uh, first of all, Dana, thank you so much for being here with us today. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, well, first of all, um, we just wanted to start off the interview today by asking you a few questions about your career in both museums and as a consultant. Um, first, how did you get interested in this field of work? In the museum field of work or in the web um, field of work? Probably more in the, well, actually both, because uh, you know, your degrees um, are not in museums um, per se, so we would love to hear how you um, got interested in museums in specific and then working with the web in particular. Well, I, back when I went to school, you couldn't study the web because it didn't exist. <laughs> study web design because there was no such thing when I was in school. And there were actually pretty few museum studies programs as well. So I studied journalism as an undergrad because I was always interested in telling stories. And I studied broadcast journalism because I was interested in using media and technology to tell stories. So this was what you did in the days before you, you could tell stories using the web and digital media. And I minored in art history and Italian because I always was passionate about the humanities and I, I loved art history. So I kind of evolved into what I what I do by bringing together my journalism interests, my art history interest, and ended up working at the art museum as an undergrad at University of Southern California. And then I went on to grad school in art history, and I worked at the museum at University of Chicago where I Hello, Dana? Specifically around how okay, I could yeah. use technology in a museum education. Yes. Oh, Which sorry. You're, you're cutting in and out on me a little bit. So I, I missed a little bit of your answer. Um, but I just want to make sure you hadn't, we hadn't lost you all together there for a moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, and I'm hearing you cut in and out a little bit, too. Well, uh-oh. That's not going to do. <laughs> Let's see what we might be able to do about that. Um, yeah, no, everything looks okay on my end, so sorry that we're having a little bit of technical issues. I guess we'll just keep on going, and if we end up having some real issues, we'll uh, we'll cut out and try again if that's okay. Okay, I'm able to oh. hear you, but it does it is cutting in and out, so I'm oh, not no. sure what's going on. Okay, well we'll soldier on for the moment and see how we can. Uh, I'm happy to. Uh... Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. If we have to, okay, un come out and come back. All right. Um, so our second question is, um, what made you sure. decide to switch from working within a museum environment to working as a consultant? 
I had been inside museums for a long time, working at SFMOMA, working at the Berkeley Art Museum, and I decided I was so interested in what I started doing, which is design thinking, and I can talk about that in a moment, that I was excited about doing this with a variety of institutions and realized one of the ways to be able to work with different institutions with types, different types of collections and different, different I went out on my own almost two years ago, and I left my position at SF Moment to become a consultant. Science to natural history, and I've loved the variety of the kinds of institutions I've been able to work with as a consultant. I've worked with the Getty in Los Angeles, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, the Anchorage Museum in Alaska. So I've been able to work with different types of collections and different types of institutions. And I, I really enjoy that, working, having that variety. Oh, absolutely. I can understand why. Um, well, what do you see as some of the benefits beyond just the variety, um, as well as some of the challenges of working as a consultant? Well, working inside an institution, I think, is, is critical and I don't think I could do what I do now if I hadn't been inside museums for so long. Right. And I think that I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I hadn't been at SFMOMA for so many years and before that working inside other institutions at UC Berkeley. I, I think that I have a, a breadth and depth of experience that I never would have gained as a consultant. And I, I think that it, it's, it gave me incredible perspective because I've been on the inside of an institution and I know what the daily struggles are and the daily battles, if you will, around oh, yes. the digital turf. And I've been, been there in the trenches, both as the hands-on person and also as the manager trying to keep the big picture and run interference and manage everything and also be the one who was the doer. And now as a consultant, I can really relate to what, my, what the institutions are going through when I'm working with different institutions and what their daily struggles are like. And I think that, that that's how I'm able to do what I do now and, and have credibility with the institutions I work with because I've been there and I've done it and sure. understand what they're, what they're doing. But it's also nice to be able to work with different institutions that have different types of struggles now. And I, and I, really, I really enjoy that. But of course, I miss, my, miss the team I worked with and I miss the, the daily camaraderie I had with my colleagues at SFMOMA. But I'm enjoying, enjoying what I'm doing now at this point in my career. Sure. Um, another question we had was um, with how quickly technology in the, in the web sphere changes, um, what, what, how do you keep up with it all? Um, do you have certain um, journals that you really like or sites that you like to keep up with? Like, how do you keep abreast of what's going on? Well, it's certainly a challenge because it's changing constantly. Yeah. And I, one of my great sources of information is Twitter and following people on Twitter who I think are very smart and, and are going to be talking about articles and trends. So I follow People, I don't just follow museum people. I follow a lot of, a lot of people who work uh, in different areas of the web and software development world. I follow people who talk about 
the lean startup methodology of software development. I follow people who talk about agile. I follow a lot of people who do user experience design. And I feel like following those people who are not museum-specific practitioners gives me a good perspective on what's happening in the tech world. I also live in the Bay Area where there's a lot happening, so I yeah, try like to go ground zero. <laughs> yeah, so I go to a lot of meetups. I, I, I'm still connected with and, and, and friends with the many different software developers I worked with when I was at SFMOMA. We had different consultants we would bring in and different design agencies. So I still collaborate with not only the developers at those different firms, but some of the designers, the content strategists. So I, I keep my network very active and strong, and that's how I know what's going on. And then I, I, I read blogs. I get a daily email from TechCrunch. I, you know, I, I, I try to really stay on top of what's happening out there because it's changing so quickly. Even at SFMOMA, it was, you know, when you're in a museum, you're not, you're not working. It's not like you're working in a tech company. So it's, even then, it's challenging to stay on top of what's happening. So Absolutely. It's it's really staying abreast of, of all the trends I'm seeing and reading the books like I, the Lean Startup and Lean User Experience. I'm, I'm trying to read these books and really keep, keep on top of what's happening. And it's sure. really hard. It's a never-ending struggle. And, and you, can, you can get sucked into to reading things online and next thing you know, four hours have gone by. Oh, yeah. It's like a, going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a real rabbit hole. And it takes a lot of discipline, I think, to to try to stay on top of it, but not end up sucking all your time and not getting other work done. Right, still have to be productive, absolutely. Um, well, Dana, now the questions that we have um, were sort of about some of your past projects that you've um, had the pleasure to work on. Um, our first question was about whether uh, a particular project sort of stands out as a personal favorite for you and maybe why that particular project was such a good experience for you. Yeah, my, my favorite project that I'm very proud of was the redesign of the SFMOMA website, sfmoma.org. And yes. this, was, this went live in 2008, so in web years, that's already ancient. But it was a big, <laughs> massive project, and it was when the site launched, when the redesign launched, the site was about 10 years old. So it was a huge huge big deal to to redesign the site and relaunch it. And I was very proud of that project because it was at least two years of just planning, internal planning, meetings, trying to get everybody in the institution on board. Because this was back in the days when you still had to justify why you needed to redesign a website. And everyone said, well, it doesn't look broken. It looks it looks good to us. What's the problem? And this was a two-year project of just getting everybody on board about why we needed to bring the site up to date, both the front-end design and interface and the back-end infrastructure. And this was the first project at SFMOMA web project that was really informed by user research. And the previous versions of the website, there hadn't been any significant user research done. It was more people sitting around in a room kind of going on their gut their gut instincts of what looked good and what they thought the site should be. And for the website redesign, we partnered with a firm, a design firm in San Francisco called Hot Studio, and engaged them before we even started the design and development on a really thorough user research effort where we 
interviewed users of the site. We talked to current users, potential users. We developed what are called personas around our key user types. We did online surveys. We looked at our web traffic. We did what are called intercepts, where something pops up on the screen when someone's on the site, and we say, hey, do you have a minute? We want to talk to you. So we did these, these interviews, both in person and online, and it was a really thorough, deep research project before we even started talking about what the features were. And then we, we meaning me and my colleagues at SFMOMA and the design firm, were very mindful about what would go into the new site, how we prioritized the feature requests, what technology we wanted to use. So I was really proud of that project because we put a lot of thought into it and really tried to be disciplined about what we built and why we built it. Wonderful. Yeah, it, it was a, a, it's a beautiful site, and um, I'm sure that it, after that much effort that it's just great to see it sort of out there and about <laughs> and have some yeah, good reactions yeah. about it out in the press, and people really love that site. So, Yeah, and, and it's been changed since I've left. The, the, the new web team has done some really beautiful things with it and, and added onto it and, and refined it, and I think it looks terrific. And now they're redesigning it again for the opening of the new building in 2016. So oh, that site will go away when the new for the new building opening. Oh, that'll be nice. Absolutely. Um, so uh, you know, we all wish that everything that we tried went to plan. Um, but in your uh, experiences, have you tried any web trends that just didn't come out the way that you had anticipated? Oh yes, I mean dozens, <laughs> because there's always the challenge when you're in an institution and. was asking people, well, why do you want to have time and money in something that seems cool and trendy, but do, is, do we really even need it and do users want it? And there were so many examples of that. I'm just trying to think of one of them was um, years ago, just thinking about content that would be uh, pay per access museum content. And that was something we tried at SFMOMA for members and had content that would be members-only content that you had to log into access and put all of this effort into the editorial development, the content strategy, and then the usage rate was so low. And so um, it, was, it was really disappointing. And, and, and I think that was something where I don't think we did our due diligence research, like why are we building all this content that's, that's going to be, uh, got, has a paywall up front and, and very few people would actually use it. So that's an example. Another trend that I remember seeing coming and going was the whole trend of, um, of personal logons for a lot of sites. And I know that museum sites are still doing this, but when in the beginning of this notion of like my museum, my, you know, my XYZ, there was a lot of effort put into the back-end development around giving people these personal logins. And then in the beginning of the launch of these kind of features, the, the usage rate was so low because people were, were going to the places they were already going, to social media sites or to other sites, and the last thing they wanted to do was remember their logon for the museum site. So I've seen trends like that come and go. I think that we've evolved and things are better now because you can link to Facebook, for example, so people already have a Facebook logon. Or you, you're, it's not asking people to create yet another account that they have to keep track of. But back in the early days, this was ask, a big ask of, 
of museum members and visitors. So I've seen lots of trends like that come and go. Sure. So now that you've seen stuff like that, you were talking about doing your due diligence. Um, when these new ideas are coming across your desk, what are you looking for for, you know, why you might try something or why you would discount it as sort of a fad? Like what are, what are some of the things that would make you, uh, you know, consider something a little, a little harder? Well, this is where, for me, the design thinking methodology comes in and why I was so attracted to this framework and this process because design thinking is about starting with your users and understanding what they really want and need before you start talking about what you're going to build. So with any project, I'm really interested in asking why. Why do you want to make an app? Why do we want to have a microsite? Why do we want to have this new special mobile site for XYZ exhibition? It always, for me, comes back to why. And forcing staff to, to stop, step back and think about it. What are the goals? Why are we doing this? Does it make sense? And is there another way we can meet this need that might be a little bit leaner, a little bit more nimble than launching a huge, massive project that's going to require a lot of investment and time and money and budget? So, so I always like to ask why as a, a, as a filter and, and try to really understand what, what are the user's needs? Why are we making this feature? That's, that's really my kind of um, uh, um, guide. And then to really get down into what's the best way to accomplish that? Is there something we already have in, in terms of a technology or another framework we can build on to meet this need in a way that might be a little bit easier and quicker to do? Sure, sure. Um, now, going back to your, your SFMOMA um, project, um, I think everybody's heard the argument from from certain camps that um, using technology-based outreach might alienate large portions of a museum's less tech-savvy audience. Um, what are some of the measures in your um, you know past projects that you've implemented uh, to help uh, have an in inclusive experience for people that are sort of at all tech and you know tech level? Uh, you know, if they know a lot, don't know much, so that so that everybody can enjoy it. Oh. When you say alienate, what what are you thinking in your mind? What what uh, components of a museum audience are you, do you have in mind when you say that? Just so I can understand that a little better. Um, really, uh, you know, if if you have things that are on the website that aren't offered in person, would people that aren't very tech savvy or comfortable in a web environment miss out on that content? Um, if you had mobile applications or, or web content on a, on a mobile device, would that be something that, um, you know, if you spend a lot of money, like I've heard it actually at, at the place where I work, that if you invest a lot of money sort of in a, in a mobile application, what if people don't have a smartphone? What if they're scared of smartphones? Um, that, that sort of thing. Um, so just wondering sort of what your strategies have been in the past for overcoming some of those fears maybe at an institutional level of, of why you wouldn't buy into to tech projects. I, I think it depends on the institution and it depends on the project. And it also, I don't, I don't see things as mutually exclusive. I know there's a lot of tensions in museums about things are either or. Like if we put our collection online, no one's going to come to the museum. Or yeah. if we try to design something that serves this audience, we're not designing for everybody. And I, I, I like to think of things as not so black and white. 
And I think it really depends on what you're talking about. And it's not, I don't see these projects as something that everyone in the museum is working on the app, so you're not doing anything else and you're neglecting your collections and your in-gallery in experiences. I think it depends on what it is. And I think that's where asking why are we building this before we build it helps avoid getting into that situation. Because I think if, if a museum is mindful and has a digital strategy in place about why we're doing what we're doing, you won't get yourself into that situation where you've built something that nobody will use. Right. So I don't mean to give a simplistic answer, but I think it's a lot more nuanced. And, and, no, and that's, that's and, fair, absolutely. Yeah, and I get, I, I do, the work I do now around design thinking, I, I'm, I'm going into museums and I'm asking them to think through problems in a different and new way and a very mindful way. And I often encounter initially a lot of resistance, like, well, why sh why, we already work fine. We have the way we work. And I would say, that, that's great. I'm not telling you to throw that out. This is not an either or. This is, this is about working along a, a continuum where you can just dive right into a project and go crazy, or you can just pause a little bit and think about what are the goals, why are we doing this, so that it's, it's balanced and thought, thought through. Right. Um, now, I, I just wanted to give you um, a tiny bit of background on sort of why the group um, that you're speaking with today, why we got grouped together. Um, mm -hmm. For our uh, project, for this class that we're in, we are all sort of redesigning our museum's website. Um, and so, you know, we could do any web project, but we all chose to do a website redesign. Uh, so we actually developed a couple of questions around specifically website redesign. Um, and since you have um, obviously quite a bit of knowledge on this, um, we'd like to pick your brain a little bit if you don't mind. Um, sure. I just want to make sure I understand. So you're all respectively working on your own institution website or? Absolutely. Or one that we're closely associated with. Like I'm, I'm redesigning the website for the museum that I work for. Um, okay. Two of the other of my group mates are doing the same. And a, and a third um, is uh, for a, a garden space that she's associated with. So, okay. um, so yeah, so we're all sort of redesigning a website. And, and again, you could have done any web-based project, but we all decided on a website redesign. Okay. Um, so you were speaking earlier about some of the, the steps that you took in the SFMOMA web design, uh, web redesign process, and, and we're sort of going through those same processes right now. So we actually have quite a few uh, questions about that. Um, the first one is, if, if, uh, uh, what do you feel are sort of the top two user research methods, if there are a top two, or some of the more important user research methods um, that can most effectively inform a website redesign? I think interviews with users are critical and and qualitative interviews that are very deep uh, ethnographic interviews where you're really trying to understand what do your users need and want and these these interviews can be done by walking into the galleries and talking to visitors or recruiting them in advance and scheduling them and I wrote a paper about the research methods we used for the SFMOMA website redesign that even though it was written in 2007, I think the methods in there are still relevant and I would urge you to, to read it. It's, it was sure. a museums and the web paper. And we did interviews with, with, with users, both current website users and also just museum visitors who were not using the website. So I think interviews are critical as a qualitative research method. Then, of course, there's the quantitative method like a survey, an online survey. And I think online surveys are great, but I don't think that that should be one, the only tool used because I think the 
quantitative gives you one picture, but it doesn't give you the nuances and the the whys behind what people are doing. With a with a online survey, you can find out what people are doing across big aggregate numbers. But then I think complementing that with interviews and really getting staff to participate in those interviews or watch videos of those interviews so that staff are hearing from users firsthand what they're saying. So it's not, for example, it was one thing when I was at SFMOMA to tell people, you know, our, our users are, are really intimidated by modern contemporary art. I can say that, but if they hear a, a user saying it, it's a lot more powerful. So I tried to have staff join me when I was doing interviews or watch videos of interviews or read transcripts of interviews. So it's not just me saying it. It's like, look, I'm not making this stuff up, guys. This is what we're hearing in our interviews. So those are right. two of my favorite methods you can use in combination. And then there's, Wonderful. there's, yeah, there's others like looking at your Google Analytics, and there's so many things that, you know, so many tools out there, and there's so much great information because the field has evolved over the last, 10, 15 years, I've seen the field of user experience just explode. And there's so many great resources online for, for reading about all these different methods. Sure, sure. And, and one of those resources is your blog, um, Design Thinking for Museums. And we've mentioned that uh, your idea of design thinking um, in a couple of other questions. Um, but I'm hoping that maybe now you can just give us a, maybe a better idea of, of what you feel design thinking is um, and then how it is um, you know, a, a helpful or essential tool um, or way of thinking for website redesign? So design thinking is a process of human-centered design. And that really just means putting people at the center of a design process as opposed to putting a technology decision at the center. It's about the people for whom you're making something. And it's a process that's five steps empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And this is a process that starts with empathy, meaning before, and I, I talked about this earlier, before you go start building your website or your mobile app or whatever it is, you want to understand your users and have empathy for them and their needs before you get into what you're going to make for them. And it's a process that's very mindful about separating the understanding of your users' needs and defining what the problem is you're trying to solve before you go and start to build it. So for example, before jumping to saying, oh, we need, I'm just trying to think of an example, um, we need a new mobile app that users can use in the gallery to um, curate their own collection of artworks in the museum. Before you jump there, you step back and say, well, why do we need that? Talk to users understand what what it is they're trying to achieve when they're coming to the museum. What what are their goals? Why are we trying to do this for them? And what are their real needs? And reframing the problem and then going and figuring out what you want to build. So it's not, I always like to tell people, it's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's not even new. It's just a methodology and a process for for defining the right problem before you start to go solve it and building prototypes to test before you invest the time and the money in the new web. A new website or whatever it is without really being sure they're building the right thing. So when I work with museums, I try to urge them to do really low fidelity, rapid, scrappy prototypes 
to test ideas and explore ideas before they go and make it. And I'm not even talking about like a clickable wireframe that looks like a, a screen that's a digital prototype, but a paper prototype that's very rough that helps you validate your ideas before you go and build them. Right, and before you've invested a lot of time and money. Yes, and I work with lots of museums using these methods for different types of challenges, different types of problems. One museum I was working with was using this process to think through a, an in-gallery, a digital component of, a, of an upcoming exhibition, and it was the in-gallery digital component. And before they built anything digital, we made mock-ups and paper prototypes and tested them in the galleries with visitors before they started to, to build it out and learned a lot of really interesting things around what visitors wanted in terms of this exhibition and its content and how much they wanted to be able to contribute their own stories to this, this digital um, interactive. So it informed what they went and started building before right. they built it. Which can be very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Again, before you get too far down the pipe in the wrong direction. Um, so, so on the back end, um, what do you see as some of the most effective measures of success for a website redesign once it's already launched? That is the I, oh, are you still there? I'm here. Yes. Oh, I just heard a. I know. I heard the the bad sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Usually um, it doesn't I mean think... anything good. institution before embarking on the redesign because some institutions might have criteria and that's what you want to measure and if you start you know doubling tripling whatever your tickets sold online that might be your measure of success another institution maybe there's an institution that doesn't even charge for admission and the measure of success could be totally different it could be something like the the um, qualitative, um, positive social media shares about that museum's collection and the language used in talking about the collection and social media. I mean, it could be so different. I think it depends on the institution. For SFMOMA, we had some very hard to measure outcomes for our website redesign, and one of them was about understanding people's comfort with and engagement with modern and contemporary art. That was very hard to measure. And we, we engaged a um, research firm to help us measure that before and after the people's comfort level and their engagement with modern contemporary art after the site was launched. So I think that that it's usually a revenue-based, you know, the, the, the measurements are, are pretty black and white. They're, they're very quantitative. But I think for museums, it's harder. Oh, did I, did I lose you? I heard a, a ding. I know. We keep getting the ding. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still here. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. So I okay. think that it, it, it really depends. And I think it's important to how many email addresses you, you get and building up the, the, the email addresses of members and non-members. I mean, it really depends. There's so many measures you can look at. And then there's, right. you know, there's um, winning awards or 
you know, for the visual design. So I think that there, that before embarking on a redesign, it's important to lay out what will those measures of success be and how are you going to measure them. Sure. And sure. be very, very, really think through. One of the measures of success is going to be social media engagement. Okay, so how are we going to measure that and what does that mean? One of them is right. going to be revenue driven, you know, donations online, memberships purchased online, tickets purchased online. Absolutely. It differs for the institution as well. Um, now, uh, all, I think all four of us that are in this group all work for a pretty small institution. Like my, where I work, um, there are four full-time employees, none of whom are IT specialists or computer specialists. Um, do you have any specific advice for museums with small staff, limited resources um, during a web design? I think this is a great time to be a, a small museum because we, we are at the day and age where there are so much great stuff out there that you can use. When I entered the field, everything was hand-coded. It was built from scratch, HTML 1.0 and 2.0. Now you've got things like WordPress and Squarespace and um, Weebly and all these platforms that you've, and you've got things like Tessitura and, I mean, there's just so many systems out there. There's all the stuff, so I'd say do not be afraid to take advantage of tools that are already built and, and use those. Don't try to reinvent the wheel and build it from scratch. And I don't think there's anything wrong with building a site that's built on WordPress or on another platform that already exists. And I think it's really awesome to be in the field today because when I started, it was you had to go out and find developers that were coding this stuff from scratch. It was very expensive and very time-consuming. But now you can launch a WordPress site. It's it's just it's phenomenal what you can do. What Did I lose you? Are you still there? Hello? Yeah, I just lost you there for a minute. Can you hear me? I'm still here. Okay. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. Did you finish your answer and I was just dead airing you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know um, at what point it cut off. I don't know. I'm not where sure. You, what um, did you, where did I last? Oh. You were talking about WordPress and that you could just form a site on WordPress and then I couldn't, didn't hear anything after that. And then you came back for a moment and just said, hello, Liz, are you there? <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I've probably talked about WordPress a lot. And my point was there are so many existing tools and systems and platforms out there that I think that being a small institution in this day and age, it's so much better than it was even five years ago. There's so right. many platforms out there to build an online store for your museum, to launch an email newsletter, to to have a blog, all these things that in the old days you had to build them from scratch. And I think a small institution should be trying to use existing tools as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, as you say, all of us for this class are developing, our project has to be on a website. Um, and I'm actually using WordPress to create it, and it's remarkably easy. <laughs> so it's, yeah. uh, it's nice to have those tools available to us, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, now, uh, what do you see uh, for museums as being sort of the biggest challenge in the virtual world? Um, and do you have any advice for how a museum might be able to overcome some of those challenges? Wow. Um, that's, a know, that's, that's a, that's a toughie. Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest challenge is internal, honestly. I think the biggest challenge is the internal discussions and battles that go on and are waged over the digital space. And the biggest challenge in museums is museums themselves because you've got the younger folks coming in who have grown up with technology and are open to technology and want to experiment and embrace technology. And then you still have the folks who are wary and more uh, suspicious of technology. And there's just these internal battles that take so much energy and time and discussion. And I don't think it needs to be that way because I don't think it's an either-or discussion. I don't think museums are, if museums start to fully embrace technology and adopt this digital first mindset, I don't think that all hell's going to break loose. And I think that there's, there's this, I think that that's the biggest challenge is the internal organizational challenges, really. And I think that that, that can be overcome through through communication and collaboration and mutual understanding of what the fears are on each side and ways to approach projects in, in a slow, methodical way where everybody feels comfortable. I don't know if that yeah. answer makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. That was actually sort of what I was trying to get at with the question about alienating portions of your audience, because, again, that's something that I've heard within my own board discussions when we propose web outreach programs, um, that there's sort of a reticence there. Um, so that was sort of the same sort of idea that I was trying to get out a little bit earlier. So I, I appreciate that, that um, we've had a chance to sort of go over that just a little bit more, because I do think that's a, a big problem, at least one that I've struggled with. So. Uh, yeah, actually, it's not, it's not just yeah. me. <laughs> and you're reminding me I didn't completely answer that question because I, one of the things I want to add is that there may be projects for which a, an analog outreach program makes perfect sense, and then there are projects for which a digital program makes sense. And I think the institution has to decide what's best. And what, I know there are institutions when you're dealing with older members who still prefer to get print. I know this mm -hmm. is conversation goes on, you know, the idea of like switching the newsletter or the magazine over to a digital publication. I think that's where it's really valuable to do a survey and assess the interests of the members. And if you find that there's a, a population that is a certain age and wants to still get print, for example, then there's no, there's no shame in that. Keep doing the analog print piece. But if right. the institution is trying to reach a younger audience or that's what you're hearing from the audience, then you can think of digital. And I think that's where it depends on the project. And I re even though I'm a digital person and I've worked on digital pro projects for 15 years of my career, I still think that there are times when it's appropriate to do something analog and it makes sense. Absolutely. And you want to reach certain types of certain members of, you know, certain audience members where it shouldn't be digital. Right. Well, we have just one last question. Um, so it, of the web trends that are sort of uh, out there today, is there one that really excites you? Uh, 
hmm. that you're looking forward to? We've read about a couple, you know, like 3D imaging and all sorts of other things. Is there is there one that's standing out to you? Is something that you can't wait to see how it develops or looking forward to implementing it yourself? Kind of drawing a blank. I think um, I think probably it's interesting to see where augmented reality goes. Mm-hmm. And some institutions are starting to dip their toes in, but many aren't. I think that that's pretty interesting, especially dealing with historical content. And, and I'm curious to see where that goes and what happens. And it's interesting to me to think about how museums could prototype an augmented reality experience. Um, I was working with one institution that was thinking about an augmented reality uh, interactive, and, and we were talking about how they could prototype it in in an analog prototype, and we started experimenting with with ways to 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 do that in the galleries, and I think that's really exciting and interesting. Absolutely. Um, well, Dana, the whole time that we've been talking, all of my group members are also on the line, and they may well have some questions for you. Do you mind yeah, hanging sure. around for just a couple yeah, more sure. moments while everybody unmutes and see if we have any yeah, questions? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right, everybody, unmute. <laughs> Hi, Dana. This is Leslie. Hi. Thank, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, it's been really informative, and you've covered a lot of ideas that we've been talking about in our class. One of the things you mentioned is, you know, using multiple processes to understand your audiences. We've performed user surveys. We, um, we've done some user personas to try to get in the head of some users and that sort of thing. Do you have a particular um, thing? You mentioned interviews as well. Do you have a uh, particular one thing, or do you prefer multiple things in order to, to better understand your audience to do this? You know, you mentioned the empathy to understand them, to understand their needs. Is there a way that you um, you would prefer doing that, or suggest for people that have limited resources, like for all of us in small museums? I think. The great thing about interviews is you can do them yourself. And that's what's so cool about museums. You can walk into the galleries and your users are right there. When I work with with corporate clients that have online products, they have to recruit people in advance. They can't just walk out and talk to a visitor. And interviews are something that you can do you can do a 30 minute interview when i was at sfmoma i would i would have my colleagues do 45 minutes a month of going into the galleries and talking to visitors and we would give people either a free ticket to the museum to come back or a postcard a note card a magnet i mean this is not like you're giving them a 150 dollar amazon gift card these are really low method, um, low cost methods that you can use. There, and there are websites that talk about like guerrilla usability methods and low cost usability. And I think that in museums, it's it's really low cost because your users are right there. And I'm a really a big fan of interviewing. I'm also a big fan of of observation of visitors, watching what they're doing in the galleries, who's using a smartphone. Who's using an iPad? What are they doing? What 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 do you see? What kind of patterns do you see? So, 
I think that that's what's great about museums is you can go do this stuff. One thing I recommend to people is try to get a buddy to help you with it so that you're not trying to go out and do this all by yourself. Somebody who can help you if you're interviewing, you're doing the interview, someone else is taking notes. I think it's really hard to be do interviews and take notes at the same time. So try to recruit just one colleague who can help you out or a, a classmate. Yeah. Yeah, and I like how you point out, like, you know, just watching can tell you so much about your audience and how they're using this, this medium uh, of digital, you know, mobile devices or iPads or whatever. That's great. Yeah, so I, I, observing people, interviewing people, and another thing is immersing yourself with your users or your visitors. And I always try to ask people, when was the last time you took the audio tour in your museum or you tried to use your mobile phone in the galleries or try to go experience what they're experiencing so so that it's you're not just talking to them about what they do but you try it yourself so observing engaging with visitors which is through interviews and then immersing yourself in the same experience I mean I've had people I've had people in museums do things, and this is not dealing with digital, actually it could be dealing with digital, like go through the museum in a wheelchair to see what's that like to go through your museum in a wheelchair. Because people, if, you, if you're not in a wheelchair yourself, you don't have empathy for what's that like. And then try to use a touch screen from a wheelchair. How's that different? Try to read the label from a wheelchair. I mean, just try to build empathy for your visitors and immerse yourself in what they're experiencing. That and these are things sense. that yeah. you can do for free. Um, it looks like my uh, uh, group member Emily is trying to ask a question. Emily, are you? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Oh, again, I want to repeat the thanks for for joining us. Um, what is when when a new technology presents itself? How long? Do you, you know, wait and see before it pans out as something that people are really going to adopt? Or do you tend to just jump right in with a new technology? Or is there like an incubation period before you start with it? I think that's another one that's one of those million-dollar questions. And sometimes you jump right in and you find out it totally bombs. Like I remember back when MySpace was the big thing and museums were creating MySpace pages and we had one at SFMOMA and then we all know what happened to MySpace. And I guess people still use it, but I don't know anybody who does. And there's times where you just, you might try it and go with your gut instinct and it might, it might bomb. But I tend to not want to be the very first one to, to jump at the, at, at the new technology. But on the other hand, the museums that do do that are kind of leading in the field and others can learn for them, from them. So I think it depends on the technology and what does it mean to adopt that technology. I mean, some technologies are going to be a low bar lower barrier to entry than others. Is there a technology you have specifically in mind? No, I, you know, just, well, as we were saying, things pop up all the time. You never know right. what's, what's going to appear. And, well, like you were saying with MySpace, you know, MySpace is just music now. So, right, right. Um, there's that, that careful balance between what's going to end up being a waste of resources versus are you going to be the front runner? Right. Is there anything that yeah. um, you look for in a technology? Any specific thing? Like, is it just a gut feeling? Like, you think this will be really successful? I think it's also it's looking for how can you dip your toes in it and prototype it without going all out. 
So, you know, museum, I remember when blogs were the big thing, like, oh, museums starting blogs. Well, there's one thing to go all out and have an editorial staff, but try, trying out a blog that may, maybe it's updated once a month. So find ways that you can do a, a, a less of a commitment to that technology and, or a way you can test it out and, and prototype it before diving into it. And I know some technologies are easier than others. It's easier said than done. So I know like QR codes, I remember when that was the thing. You know, people hmm. were like, should you put QR codes in your galleries? And some museums did and some didn't. And I think that one is probably harder to prototype than others. And it, it just, I mean, I, I also would rely on my gut in deciding and looking, looking at what are other institutions doing what do I hear people talking about? I mean, are people talking about it in social media? Does it seem like a trend that is here to stay? Um, and I've seen so many of these come and go, but some of them morph and evolve. So it used to be iPods in the galleries, and now it's people on their own iPhone in the gallery. So it started out with iPods and people checking out devices, and now it's, it's morphed into people on their own devices. But the, some of the work that was developed in museums around content that was on iPads still, or excuse me, iPods, still makes sense for people to access that content on their own device. So it wasn't all wasted work. All right. Thank you. Can I wrap it up? <laughs> Um, hey Dana, I'm I'm Rachel. I also realized we didn't really introduce ourselves or who we were, but um, I'm yeah, I'd love uh, to Rachel know who you guys are. Yeah, like where we are. <laughs> and I yes, I work for an organization called the uh, Institute of Southern Jewish Life, located in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and I think what's really great about our conversation uh, just over this hour is you've really covered a lot of what we're learning in class. You know, we're, we're chatting here. We're like, oh, wireframes and paper card sorting and um, user personas. So. Um, our, our other data is giving us a lot of this information, which is great. We're able to build upon it. My question for you also had to go back to um, this idea of user needs and motivations and, and design thinking. Um, you know, we've learned a lot. You know, one of the main reasons someone comes to a museum website is, you know, to find the hours or directions mm -hmm. or basic museum information. I was wondering, you know, what in your interviews, you know, this might be about SMOMA, you know, is able to extrapolate some other things that you want to include on the website. Like, what do people say that make you think, oh, we need to include this in collections, or we need to we need to write a blog? You know, what what are you looking for? What kind of questions do you ask to help kind of that supplementary um, something on a website that might not just be basic museum information? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and thank you for bringing up card sorting. That was one of the methods that I um, we used in the SFMOMA website. I, just as an aside, we went down into the galleries and did card sorts with visitors to help tackle our information architecture and the naming of the website, of the naming of the different sections by doing card sorts. So thank you for reminding me of that. But um, an example, I mean, yes, I think that the majority, uh, I know at SFMO when we did our research, people were wanted to know what's on view and what are the hours, all that basic information. Then when we dug a little bit deeper, we started learning people, people being visitors to the website, didn't differentiate between collections and exhibitions. To them, it was all, it's just art, and it's there. 
and and that was something we we learned by doing doing interviews and doing surveys. Then we started digging a little deeper and finding out there there were visitors who would would go see a special exhibition and think, well, huh, that's interesting. Now now that I've seen it, I do want to know more about this artist. Now now I'm curious to know more about why why this artist does this work and a little bit more about this artist's biography or this artist's influences. And that's where we started to think about the other layers of information on the website beyond the basic what's on view and when's it open and thinking about what goes in the you need to have the artist biography online or oh what are who are some of the artists who influence this artist's work or oh this people were interested in the other um other work done by this artist that wasn't on view but that might never be on view at SFMOMA or another institution but they're still curious to see what the early this artist's early career so we started thinking about how could we bring in other information from elsewhere on the web or link out to it or provide it in our online collection. And I think that's that's some of the information you get by digging a little bit deeper. And in my work now with some science museums, we're finding out that visitors may learn about a science concept at the museum and may want to go home and learn more about that concept. So maybe it's global warming, where there's some information at the museum about climate change, but they want to go read more about from other sources. So thinking about how do you present that information and how do you, how do you make it findable? How do you layer it? How, how do you serve it in the right way that, that it is findable and accessible? I think there's so many levels you can go to. And then what are the ways that you direct people then to the website? So if they're in the galleries and they're doing these things, um, sorry, uh, what kind of what strategies do you use on site and then to direct them online? Or what are kind of unique things that people can find online versus on site? Well, I think there's always making sure that the messaging, all the marketing messaging is always pointing people back to more information that's available online so that in all all materials, print materials or signage that you're referring people, you know, check out, you know, www whatever it is dot org. It's not just something that's only done in one print piece. It's it's everywhere that's possible. Signage in a cafe on on a table that you know is promoting a membership. Uh, campaign. There's always driving people back to get more information online or mm -hmm. or driving people in an app to, to tell them to check out the website. So it's just not, not making it like an afterthought. It's always integrated into the messaging. Yeah, we all got to work on that. <laughs> um, all right, I, I have one more question, guys, but if you, if, if you want to jump in there. Um, yeah, so this is Leslie again, um, and I'm coming from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I work on the on-campus gallery at Lawrence University. It's the Riston Art Galleries. The, um, we have three gallery spaces in the collection, and, and my project is to redesign um, our website. And um, you had mentioned earlier, since uh, uh, web designing is a very new thing to me, um, and I think to a lot of us in this group, um, and you had, you had mentioned earlier that a big 
problem is keeping up with the trends because the trends are always changing. And you had mentioned a couple of blogs um, and keeping uh, following people on Twitter. Do you have any suggestions for those of us who don't know who to follow or where to look? Um, what we should be looking for? Who who should we be looking up on Twitter and 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 what blogs do you suggest? So I like to look at who other people follow on Twitter. That's one of the ways that I find out, um, like check who Dana Allen Greel is following, and and like that's a great place to start. And then when you look at who she follows, who do they follow? So that's one of the ways I've built up who I follow on Twitter and how I hear about things. And there are there, and I'm sure there are people you've interviewed in in either in your class or in other classes that Dana has taught. Check out who they're following, and, and that's a great place to start. And then there are, I, sometimes I'll just, you know, it's like that rabbit hole of Twitter where I look at a tweet and then I, they refer to someone else in Twitter, and I, I, it, it'll somehow turn me on to like, oh, now I need to follow this person. You can look at look at who I follow on Twitter, and that's I think just looking at what other people are doing. You know, like Nancy Proctor is somebody who, you know, she, I follow Nancy because she always seems to know what's going on and she follows great people. You know, there's just the, the leaders in the field that, that I, I always check out what they're doing. And, and I'm happy to name some of them, but I'm sure they're all people that you've heard of. You know, go look at who's speaking at Museums in the Web and Museum Computer Network and then see if they have blogs and see who they're following. I mean, just going down the roster of the names at those conferences at um, Museum Computer Network, Museums in the Web, right there is a great place to start. And then a lot of those people have blogs, and they're fantastic resources. Then moving beyond the museum people, I follow a lot of people that are more tech, uh, tech people. Like I mentioned, I'm interested in the, there's a book called The Lean Startup. And if you haven't read it, I would recommend all of you should read that book. Have you guys read that? Is that in your reading for class? No, we haven't anybody... looked at that. Uh -oh. <laughs> Dana, are you still there? Did we just lose Dana? I think we did. I heard a bink, and she was gone. <laughs> she flipped it. She's not on our list anymore of people that are on the call. Oh, no. Well, shoot. <laughs> All right, we're still recording, so we're going to maybe wait for her to come back. Yeah, maybe she'll call back in. I'll unmute Emily. It's really unfortunate we're having these technical difficulties. This has been really fascinating. Absolutely, yeah. Her answers have been fabulous. Oh, I think she's back. Dana? 
Dana, are you Dana. there? Hi. Are you back, back with us, Dana? Hello. Hello. Connor. Okay, good. Hello. Hello, Dana. Yeah, can like you hear us? I got dropped from the call. <laughs> no problem. Oh, yeah. I know we saw you cut out. We're like, no, come back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we okay. um we are almost uh to the end of our hour that and we're grateful of course for your time, especially on a Saturday afternoon. Um I have one more question that I think is kind of a finale. Um to, but um, unless Liz, if you want to type that you had something else, but just this idea that, you know, we, we read a lot about you before we talked to you and you know, you're you're this, you know, leading consultant and teacher and presenter um in this field. And my question is kind of, you know, what what motivates you to push push this museum field forward um in this way of, of design thinking and, and you know empathetic museums. You know, what's what you know, what's your, your call to all museums that, you know, we can bring back with us in our own institutions and, and to our classmates that you know, this is this is direction that the field is moving in, and why why it's important. I think it's I'm well. I've always loved bringing things into my museum work that were not started in museums. I just really have been excited about when I when I first was introduced to agile agile software development, which is another thing you should all learn about. I, I was really excited about how can we take agile methodologies and apply them to the web team at SFMOMA. And I, I just feel like museums are not always at the forefront of the latest trends in, in technology and latest ways of thinking and working. And I get really excited about these new ways of thinking and working. And what I really liked about design thinking when I was first introduced to it is it's, it's a pretty simple, straightforward way of, of understanding the needs of visitors and users and making things that resonate with them because you're talking to them and listening to them. And it seems kind of like a no-brainer and it seems like, well, duh, why wouldn't you want to talk to the people for whom you're making things, whether they're exhibitions or websites or whatever. But I'm really surprised sometimes at how much resistance there is to this in the field. And I think maybe that just comes from fear or, or it comes from, you know, why change things that have been done for years and years this way. And I think it's really important to, to stop and think about how can we connect with our visitors and our users and why wouldn't we want to because then we can make things that are more awesome for them. And I think hmm. if museums don't do that, it's just they're just going to become more and more um, obsolete or just, you know, left behind the times. So I just get excited about that, and I think it's just really cool to work with a museum and watch watch the director of the museum or a senior curator go out onto the floor and approach a visitor and start talking to them and see see their eyes light up and go, oh, whoa, I never thought about it this way. I never realized that they don't this this language we're using in this label is not resonating with them or doesn't even make sense. I never even thought about it that way. And it's just cool to watch that. Great. I like that quote. Just make things that are more awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just always think, like, why, just wouldn't you, why wouldn't you want to do that? And it shocks me how many people don't want to do that because they're scared. That that means we're going to, you know, like, dumb down the museum. We're going to let everybody be the curator. And it's like, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying you could 
we could like, loosen up a bit and talk to people and make things that are just going to be really awesome for them. And why wouldn't you want to do that? And mm -hmm. that's going back to what I was saying earlier about I don't see these things as either or. I don't see like design thinking means we're going to like open up the doors of the museum and let people run crazy. And like that's not at all what I'm saying. It's just like if we talk to people and understand what they want and need, we can make things that are going to really be awesome for them. Mm -hmm. Very convincing argument for us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> right. As museum studies students, that's that's what we talk about a lot. You know, we're kind of this new up and coming future. And what we can do. What we can do yeah. to to shake up a few of these institutions. Yeah. That's great. I'm excited to see what you guys do. <laughs> um, all right, Liz, you want to wrap it, wrap us up? Yes, um, really, it's just a, a big thank you again, Dana. It's a Saturday afternoon, and we can't say enough how appreciative we are that you've given us a whole hour of your time. Um, you know, the, the answers that you've provided um, were fabulous, and uh, I actually can't wait to listen back on the interview um, where I'm not concentrating on what my next question will be and so that I can actually um, really absorb everything. Um, so, again, thank you so much, um, and uh, uh, we're really happy that you were with us today. Yes, thank you. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. It was nice meeting all of you. You as well. Take care, Dana.